You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Rebecca Taylor, Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, and we're going to be talking about uh, DNA origami, which is going to be uh, interesting. I'm not sure quite what that means, but uh, Rebecca, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me about your uh, your work and your research. What are you working and focusing on? So I'm a mechanical engineer, and, and so like you said, I'm an Assistant Professor in Mechanical Engineering. I also have a courtesy appointment in biomedical as well as electrical and computer engineering. And so I think that that interdisciplinarity kind of hints at the fact that I make really small electromechanical systems with biological materials. Hmm. So I, I'm so when you say biological, to... biological materials, like what's an example of uh, something you've created and with what kind of materials? So the majority of the work in my lab these days actually builds tiny machines, tiny mechanisms using DNA. And so DNA, the very same thing that sort of contains all the information to encode you, right? But, um, we use that. And when it hybridizes with complementary DNA, um, you get a material that's basically like hard plastic. And that's a lot stiffer than most of the materials um, in the body for sure. But even like outside the body, that's, that's a usable engineering material. And so we're trying to convince kind of broadly the world and the engineering community that DNA is sort of a future engineering material that we should be building it. And as mechanical engineers, there are just so many possibilities. Hmm. Yeah. So this is what we investigate. So you're you're attempting to make uh, materials that would just emulate the material properties of hard plastic or what what kind of functionality will they have in the body or outside the body? Uh, That's a great question. So I think you can approach it two different ways. You can try to make them functional, like so something that the body could interact with. You could try to make a, you know, a drug delivery device, but you can also make sensors. And so I think that my lab's really focused on sensing. And so I can give you an example of the sort of conceptual structure we're interested in, if that's useful. Um, Yeah, definitely. Okay. So basically we program in DNA. So we'll design a structure that you can form out of short strands of DNA. Sometimes we have a long strand in there too. 
Um, and so like basically that's the, there's two different types of DNA nanotechnology we use, but they both make little structures out of double-stranded and single-stranded DNA. And so you might want a sensor to say monitor a condition in your body, you know, and so uh, you could set it up so that when it receives a trigger, uh, it's able to attach to some region on, on a cell membrane or attach to other proteins like uh, sort of li like the, the line uh, your vasculature, for example. And so you could sort of like tell them to attach. Um, you can trigger them to start measuring. So if you imagine like a sensor or just an electronic device, you turn it on and like the LED comes on, you know, so you get some feedback that, yeah, we're ready to record. And then what our lab's really interested in recently is developing transduction mechanisms so that we can get more elegant information out of the system to know what it sent, right? So if we're, because of our mechanical engineering, um, we're really interested in a lot of mechanosensors. And so if you think about measuring stiffness or strain, like how much something has been deformed or maybe uh, fluid flow across the surface, we want our sensors to give us an output that we can sense from the macro scale to tell us what that sensor is experiencing. And so, so these are the sorts of systems we're programming. It's weird. I guess if you're going to do stuff in the body, you know, most people want to create sensors or whatever it is in the body. They're creating them out of foreign materials. So they worry about the body, you know, rejecting it or posting an immune response, et cetera. You want to make stuff out of, uh, you know, some of the things that are native to the body. And I guess you want it to be recognized, but you may have the problem of it being mistakenly recognized for something that you don't want it to be recognized for. You know, you still could have a potential immune response problem, but uh, it's weird. You're in a, a different space than what's traditional because of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, completely, completely. I mean, like a lot of, I think the first impulse for people that build these little systems would be keep them far away from the body, right? Because you don't want to provoke a host response. And, and just in general, uh, anything made of DNA is going to get targeted by the body. So your cells make nucleases, and those are little enzymes that are there to basically chew up foreign DNA. So if you put a DNA really? nanostructure in the body, it's going to get degraded. So not only that, but the ionic so conditions that we usually use in the lab, um, you have smaller amounts of these cations that stabilize the structure, and in the body, the structures kind of start to fall apart. Um, so an active field of research is just protecting the structures, but also protecting you from recognizing them. Yeah, I got a quick question. So you said cells put out nucleuses. Is that part of the immune system or is it any cell in the body can do that? I mean, how how does that happen? When does that happen? Um, as a mechanical engineer, I'm probably not going to give you the most thorough uh, response, but in the cytosol, so like inside the cell, basically one of the main functions is to degrade uh, foreign DNA. So it's a defense mechanism that I takes place inside every cell in your body. Yeah, Rebecca's not really an expert on that side of it. That her lab isn't working with actual human subjects or anything, so um, right. unfortunately, she can't really go into detail about that. Yeah, no worries. All right, I was just curious. Um, hmm. Interesting. So, what kinds of things would you want to affect by creating something like this? I mean, we'll get more into the mechanical structure of it, but um, you know, what's an initial goal for something that you want to create? So, I think that the it would be useful for me to talk about uh, two projects we have going on in the lab right now. And so one of them is uh, funded by the National Science Foundation and the Cyberphysical Systems Division uh, is interested in the future of sort of manufacturing robotic systems where you have a person in the loop. Uh, and so the idea is 
we're trying to make tiny robots. And if you can program a material to form itself, so I mean, the thing that I kind of didn't mention was basically an expert in manufacturing. We typically think about making stuff as using your hands or using a machine and pretty much dictating exactly what happens in every process. And so in the beginning of my career, working in product development, then going back to graduate school and studying uh, microfabrication with sort of semiconductor approaches, everything is what you call top-down manufacturing. You specify every detail and then you undertake that process step-by-step. These small systems uh, with DNA origami or any DNA nanotechnology, they build themselves, right? And so this is really, really, really powerful. You can make a ton of them and potentially that you program them to go where you want them to go and do what you want them to do. And so for this CPS project, for our, we call it our micro swimmers project, we're basically making articulated micro robots. And the goal is to make a robot that can swim through the smallest vessels in your body. So a capillary is about like, you know, eight microns in diameter. And we want to make a little robot that can swim through there. So we're using um, components, kind of like adapters, made using DNA nanotechnology to control the assembly of microsystems. So we're basically linking together beads, we're controlling the stiffness of the structure, we're controlling where things go and what separations we get using DNA. So for us, it's a cool way to facilitate a whole new type of manufacturing. And at least with some, for someone with a manufacturing background, my problem was always that you couldn't beat sort of one micron feature sizes. This is this issue usually related to the diffraction limit of light. You know, so you can have really big structures that have features on the, you know, a micron or half a micron, but then beyond that, it gets really expensive and really hard to get features much smaller than a micron. And the more you try to get them to be small, the more serial your process tends to be, right? So you might be able to make one structure with like 10 nanometer dimensions, but you can't make billions. And so DNA origami is just a radical new way uh, Hmm. to get both, right? And so we're really envisioning spanning the scales, but allowing people to operate and design uh, structures with nanoscale features. So what features of, uh, have you figured out how DNA does it? And I mean, you're obviously on the path because you're trying to replicate that, but any insights into, you know, how nature does it and that's unique and novel and better than what we can do, you know, mechanically with uh, manufacturing methods? Uh, I mean, yeah. So most of these interactions, uh, it's based on hydrogen bonding. And I think they're really important. And so I think we understand how DNA does it, but it's kind of like we have to develop the control schemes in order to utilize DNA as something to drive assembly. Um, But so I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think the way I think about it is, and this is, I think this is sort of the way it's broadly described. I was talking about it acting like a hard plastic, but when you think of DNA, you think of just like a helix, right? Or the double helix. So if you think about, you can basically figure out what sequence you want on one of those strands, and then that'll dictate what the sequence on the complementary strand has to be. And when they bind right. together, you could think of them forming just a rigid rod or like a stiff rod. And you can lash those rods together, kind of like you're building a raft. And you can mm-hmm. rotate those rods and you can make giant bundles of them and you can have like, you know, elastic hinges and you can start um, building up big things. I mean, basically, it's just like working with Legos or Lincoln Logs. Um, you can just start building. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. And this is the best thing about my job. So we, our whole goal is to program these little structures to build themselves. But then if you imagine you could build um, 
like a walkway or a big tube. And then what we do is we just put functional material um, at the edges. So for example, we might put like a molecular adhesive at either ends of one of our big tubes, and that'll make it so the tube is sticky and can connect to other particles that have that, uh, the complementary glue. So if we put our system mm. together, we can like say join two beads together or three or four or five and actually specify with like a third of a nanometer precision how far apart those beads will now be once they're joined. Okay, yeah, no, that's great. That's a really simple, easy, mechanistic picture of what, uh, what you're doing. I thought that um, you were somehow using the DNA to assemble a complex structure just because the, you know, the DNA, quote unquote, knew how to assemble a, a complicated structure, much as it does in the body, you know. So that's, don't know how I, would, I would say that's how I think about it. And I, and I think that that's, that's a goal for the coming five to 10 years. And so in biology, when we express proteins, which are basically just nanoscale machines, the host system, so the organism that you use to express your protein, they have these things called chaperone proteins, and they make sure that the assembly works properly. And I think the DNA origami systems could act like chaperones and actually sort of facilitate more complex assembly. So these are directions we're interested in. If you can if you can build something at all, like if you could build a static structure, you're partly there. Yeah. If you can make certain parts of it uh, functional, so they'll react and bind or repel, you're another step down the way of being there. But then what we're interested in doing is also making these structures uh, move, so change shapes dynamically. And right. that may be the missing piece of the puzzle. So now you don't just have this rigid adapter piece, like, you know, a Lego castle or whatever, it can now have parts of it twist or bend or move into position and carry things around. So yeah, so that's so the one, well, that might, the one uh, project. Yeah, go ahead. That might make it complicated. You know, um, again, I'm no expert on this, but I thought that DNA um, actually can, it, it does bend around histones. It gets wound around them like a spool. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's not a straight rail at all. So, I mean, if you're going to use um, a sequence that's long, and I'll just call long, let's say, I don't know, more than 100 base pairs. I'm just making this stuff up. Wouldn't mm -hmm. the DNA naturally twist and turn and do all kinds of things that would make it hard to control and build a, a structure of a certain scale or dimension or orientation because of, it does that? Yeah, fantastic. So this is why it's cool that we're in a mechanical engineering department, because you're 100% right. If it were 100 bases long, it would be about 33 nanometers long. The persistence length of double-stranded DNA is about 50 nanometers. And we use persistence length as a measure of uh, stiffness. So you can relate it directly to bending stiffness. So once double-stranded DNA gets to be about 50 nanometers long, it's it, over that span of length, a structure that long will sort of deform substantially enough that it's no longer pointing the direction it was originally pointing, you know? And so, yeah, it would twist and it would turn, but we can actually link them together and make more complicated cross-sections. And so if you're trying to control stiffness, the second moment of area is what you have to control. So your cross-section now has to be more complex than just one double helix. It might be six or 27. And what we're- You know what's really weird too is, um, what's the mechanical properties of a, uh, you know, a hundred segment section that has one order of base pairs versus another one? Does that change if you change the base pairs? I mean, it, this is like, yeah, I, I don't know if it seems crazy. So, like, basically, people assume that you're going to have, so there's two different, there's the A's, the T's, the C's, and the G's. And so the base pairs that you have, 
you do have um, basically A and T bind more weakly together than C and G. So if you have more C and Gs, more Cs and Gs in a structure, it actually will probably have a higher stiffness. And I think that um, there are research groups looking into the number of crossovers you have. So like if you were gonna lash together two of those rods, the more sites where you actually lash them together will affect the stiffness and potentially that mm. um, CG percentage will also uh, affect it. So, but on average, it, it's probably not that much. Yeah, I mean, think or about we, this. We if you, if you build, um, you know, if you build a bunch of rods, again, a hundred sequences long, um, you could build them from, you know, you can mix and match the order of the base pairs and all that. And that might change the tensile strength, the compressive strength, the bendability. I mean, it could have all kinds of consequences on how the those little rods will react, you know, no matter how much you lash them. I've also heard of um, people creating novel base pairs that don't exist in nature. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've know, spoken to scientists that are doing that. And I wonder how that would affect the mechanical properties of these things or the electrical properties. I mean, that'd be fabulous. <laughs> So I think this is why it's interesting for us to be exploring these topics. Um, and I think that at least to your point about how variation from rod to rod could cause unexpected variation in your mechanical properties. The one thing I can say is, or actually it's two things. So one thing is that um, when you make particularly DNA origami, um, you can make extraordinarily regular populations. So very monodispersed populations where every item is exactly the same, you know, or nearly exactly atomically the same, you know, 90, 99% the same. And so the fact that you may have a variation in rod three and rod two, you can still get that uniformity just for making a huge population of them. But then this is also why it's fun to be a mechanical engineer. Because the same way that you would use like an instron and do like pencil testing, we can actually design structures that we then pull on and twist in solution. And so one of the, the other projects that I'm working on right now, funded by the uh, Air Force Office of Scientific Research, is one of these things is to develop uh, self-reporting fluorescent sensors so that when, you when they change conformation, they can fluorescently tell you what conformation they're in. So the idea is like, imagine having some material and when you stretch it, it fluoresces one uh, wavelength versus another, you know? And you can get a quantitative mm. idea of how much you're stretching it. And so if you were a chemist, you think, oh, well, we're developing these novel molecules that have these cool properties, but really we're designing macromolecular structures, you know, and incorporating components that have these cool properties, but it's actually the mechanics that drive that behavior. So a big part of our research is trying to develop structures that help us assess what those properties are. So kind of back to your point about irregularity, we, we're developing assays to test that. So it's, it's a really, really cool question. And I think that mechanical engineering can help answer it. I hope that it comes up with, you know, several flavors of rod, I'm just going to call them, that have unique properties, because that would be really cool. It, it would expand your Lincoln log set and you get all kinds of really neat uh, Lincoln logs to put in there. Let's say one is very springy and one's not, mm -hmm. and one's, you know, yeah, I guess you'll see. But uh, that's really interesting. It sounds like you're, in one way, it's like you're creating this new toy that you're going to get to play with and it's going to have all these amazing properties. So it sounds exciting. Yes, we do. it's definitely really exciting. And I think the novel bases, I think many people in the field tend to think of DNA as this ancient material, you know, and sort of peptide-based systems are the newer game in town that's just far more complex, right? So if I had an alphabet that only had four letters, 
you know, I can do a lot, but I could do a lot more. I can write a lot more, <laughs> or write more complex right. uh, thoughts, at least, with a 20-letter alphabet, which is what you're working with if you're playing with amino acids. And so people that are working with DNA and adding the artificial bases, um, adding even a couple bases just gives you orders of magnitude more complexity and more opportunity. You know, but then the question is, do you want cells to be able to produce these structures on their own? Do you want them to, you know, biodegrade and just immediately go away when you when you're done using them? And so, like some of the mm. questions about using synthetic molecules uh, may speak to how they're going to act in the body and how you can control that sort of native uh, biocompatibility, but also biodegradability. But yeah, these are all really, yeah, they're I mean, really you, fun to think about. You may want to make a cage of rods for a certain molecule that degrades with a certain amount of time and order under certain conditions and releases the molecule. I mean, there's, I guess there's infinite things that can be done once you figure this out. Well, and that actually has already been done. Oh, and okay. so I wish one of the papers that got me interested in this field, uh, they actually had like a, just imagine a Jack in the box box, you know, and they had a lock and key system at the lid. And, when they came in contact with surface proteins that were on the surface of a cell that was sort of a cancer cell, the box would open. And inside the box, there were cancer drugs. And so the idea huh. is they could, I think there's some work yet to be done, but I mean, this is, it's phenomenal because basically you can just think about like a chemotherapy that only affects the drugs or the, the cells that need the drug that doesn't have off-target effects, you know? Yeah, or it would like have, bind to the box, the box would open up and spill out its contents and you know yeah yeah it's really cool um i also thought of like i guess a similar mechanism like a venus flytrap you know like, if you have a box again that it binds to some receptor on a cell it opens up and then there's some kind of attractant inside the box that you know lures in something else and then it it traps it in there or something that's probably too complicated but i don't know that it's outside the reach yeah. But I, I think that we can basically target anything or you could target nucleic acids or proteins. You can do, you know, sort of like pH ion targeted responsiveness. You can target the small molecules. Um, and then because it's DNA, you can actually do uh, molecular computations. So you could ask like if then statements like if I'm near really? the cancer cell. Yeah. Yeah. You can say like if I'm near the cancer cell and the pH is the right pH, then open the box. So you can actually encode simple circuits. And this is, I think this is where huh. some of the electrical engineering type principles come in. And so we're really excited for this because at least for sensors, you have to be able to turn them on. You have to be able to say, like, I don't, I'm not giving you a false positive or a false negative. Like, I know my sensors are there, right? I know that they're working. Interesting. Um, and I know that I can turn them off. So I, I'm guaranteed that if I see a signal, it is a signal. So we're is really there excited. a, um, Okay. Is there a name for this field? Because it sounds like it, you know, one person can't do all this work. It actually sounds like it's going to become a whole field, and there's going to be a lot of specialization within it. So I think that the field, you, would, you could just call it DNA nanotechnology. And, you know, right now it's populated by computer scientists and chemists, chemical engineers, bioengineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, and physicists. And so it is just, I mean... It's the most interdisciplinary endeavor that I've seen. Um, and so I think it's already it's already kind of happening. But then also, at least in my experience, you know, so I started out my career, well, first in product design. And then I went much smaller to, um, to sort of MEMS micro devices for uh, sensing the mechanics and electrical properties of cell populations. And 
many of the conferences that I that I go to just now put an N slash M in front of all the the formerly micro topics are now micro nano. And so, okay. yeah, so I mean, at least for diagnostics and uh, microfabricated systems research, I think nano is now just totally solid topic. So, I mean, there's a million things you could do. It must make it hard to figure out what's focused on. So now that I understand it more, listeners do, what is your oh, yeah. focus right now? What are you trying to make first or what have you made? So I think my focus really is, so we view ourselves as researchers in the science of manufacturing with nucleic acids, right? And like nucleic acid materials. And so I'm interested in techniques that help us assess how well things have formed. I'm interested in techniques that help us create structures that can better report their condition. And so this whole idea of like uh, the confirmation sensing is really important. So in chemistry, we oftentimes want to know, did a reaction happen? But in my lab, I mean, I care that the reaction happens, but I also, I want to use say shape change as the way that I assess did a reaction happen. So I'm actually making, we're making nucleic acid systems that actually report their confirmation. So they're just really mechanical. So I guess my, the first step is to make mechanical structures and libraries of them that are well characterized so that we can really uh, further the, the manufacturing sciences side of this since all of the chemistry that exists, uh, that's sort of happening already. And so I think that the big piece of the puzzle that's missing is the mechanisms. So I guess mechanism design and then getting our systems to report what we want. Hmm. And like, I mean, I think one frontier and it's like totally boring. So I have a note for myself to tell you what we do is really practical. I want to make sure that we make it work. I want to do things like assess um, mechanical properties. I want to make sure our systems can survive in harsh environments. But, you know, right. even just like, did it form well is a super hard question. And it's the kind of question that's really boring too, because like, it doesn't get people really excited until they realize how powerful it would be to say like, I can decorate my structures with exactly 99 fluorophores, not 98, not 97, you know? And so ways of actually reporting like every three nanometers, I've got something, you know? And like sort of but, being able to do that with high throughput, that's a really powerful assay. So that's the kind of thing we're working on. Yeah, I mean, the thing is though, specific stuff sells um, mm -hmm. in order to really get adoption of this. I mean, so there's a couple of roles for you. I guess, I'm just you know, on my soapbox here, but I'm imagining in the future that you create a toolkit or a platform where other scientists can use this to, you know, engineer the structures that they want. Maybe you come up with a library of structures based on whatever configurations you found that work well, and they have different functions. Maybe you, you know, you have a, a box with one lock or a box with three different kinds of locks or, you know, that kind of thing. And then you offer that as a platform to other researchers, or I guess you pick a particular direction or function that you want to target first and then just keep going with that and whoever else picks this up and runs with it fine i guess there's a lot of ways you could go but it sounds like you know finding out all these properties and everything is fun and all this functionality but what's like the do you have a focus some, for it or is it just you're you're just happy with what's going on regardless so I've, yeah there's a lot i think that's a really good question and so i'd say i know it's not easy well, it's just well, something for you to consider other... like you know yeah, so I think people in this field are actually really, really good about sharing. And so one thing that's really, really cool 
is if you look in the supplementary material for almost any paper that talks about DNA nanotechnology, DNA origami, they will actually hmm. give you an instruction sheet for what to order in order to get this thing built. And so you can really just upload that to a site like IDT DNA that makes synthetic nucleic acids for you, and you can order the components. And so I love the idea of like the sort of open source movement if you have a mechanism, right? So if you have like a nano gripper or a nano actuator or some shape switching component that's really, really critical for manufacturing and sensing, you can just publish the strands that it takes to make that, and then anybody can make that. Because one of the real right. things that's cool about the structure that makes itself is that the equipment to make it is super minimal. Anyway, and so I think that, that hmm. um, the field is doing that, but we're actually really, really interested in the opportunities for sharing in science. And so I think um, when I first started here, if you think about mechanosensing, I think there's a few directions that are super, super exciting. And so one is that uh, molecular diagnostics and point of care systems uh, with DNA can be incredibly cheap and sort of rugged. And the more elegant you can make your sensing mechanisms, the less expensive hardware you need to read that diagnostic. And so we're really interested right now in, in diagnostics. We're interested in looking either in the, in the environment, so doing environmental sensing, but also doing sensing in the body um, that in ways that haven't been possible. So like if we can make a sensor that's, you know, it's 100 nanometers, so a tenth of a micron in dimension, and we can stick it to a cell surface or to the basement membrane proteins, then we can do uh, studies of what it's like to be in a biological system that no one's been able to do. And so I think that in terms of like understanding the disease or progression of human disease, uh, and just in general, this field of mechanobiology, like how forces affect the healthy and disease development in tissue, we're poised to make substantial contributions because it's just, there's so many important questions um, that could save lives. Yeah. So I think we partner with uh, researchers in bioengineering as well as uh, developmental biology and um, like multiple cardiologists. And, and so we're really interested in getting this sort of translated to the clinic. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Uh, I think other really, really intensely fun things that you might want to, that are fun to think about are just, um, there was a paper that came out last week or the week before that was the most robust demonstration of sort of molecular computation done using DNA. And so I was talking about how you can do basic logic, but you can also run fairly complex programs with a DNA-based system. And so I, I imagine like a, a nanoscale knitting machine or, you know, a, an assembly line where you actually have these like little DNA machines that are acting like chaperones that are, you know, helping you construct a nanostructured material, you know, um, and that's science fiction. But I think it's science fiction that's going to become reality like really soon. So I get really excited about that. Yeah. I, yeah. What you're working on is amazing. You know, I think it's really, really cool. Yeah. So um, what what's ahead you know, in the next year or so for your work, what milestones are you looking to achieve? So we're working on, we have actually, yeah, so we've got our little nano springs. And, and so they're, they're very small. So they're springs that are about a micron, micron or a few microns long, and they have, they're 20 nanometers in diameter. And we can actually coil them and uncoil them on demand, right? And so mm -hmm. we're excited about that. I mean, just in general, having a little nano spring is fun because you can use that. If we can, if we can have it report how much it's stretched. Then we've got a really novel strain gauge that can be used 
um, okay. with any soft material that you can keep hydrated. So just imagine like a soft plastic or whether you could make a Band-Aid that would stick on the skin, but you basically have a material that can tell you how much it's stretched. And what we've been studying is how do we, how kind of robustly can we actuate this system? And, and what's fun about DNA is it's programmable. And so there's this concept of strand displacement where if you think of it like uh, kind of like it's an adhesive where the longer the strand of DNA, the stickier it is. So if you have two mm. strands that are that overlap partially, um, they can bind well if they're complements. But if one comes into the mix and it's actually longer and a better match to one, it'll strip off the one that's the shorter one and replace it. Really? And we can play games where we basically in real time switch out components of our springs and we can introduce components that relieve stress. We can also introduce components that restore stress to a system. So that's how we sort of twist it and untwist it in place. And so we're, really? we're looking at crazy. these really interesting opportunities for making actuators. And they don't move quickly, but at least for us, it's good enough. So the idea is on the scale of like minutes, um, we, can, we can actuate our system. So we'd like to, in the coming year, um, demonstrate the utility of those for potentially measuring stiffness of, of soft materials. Um, Wow. So I think that's that's coming up. And then the next thing is the microrobotics pro project is really cool because um, everything that we're doing is leveraging manufacturing that you can do in a day. And so when I used to work in sort of the MEMS field, manufacturing took months, you know, and you made as many variations mm -hmm. as you could imagine. And then after you'd made them, you just use them. And if you didn't have enough, that's too bad, right? And with our approach, um, we're using, the way I would describe it is kind of like nanoscale 3D printing. It's actually called two-photon polymerization. So we can polymerize polymer structures like un, that, don't, that aren't necessarily fully supported. Like people make the, the structures like the Eiffel Tower um, with dual-photon oh. polymerization. And we can make them with uh, features on the scale of, I think the resolution is about 400 nanometers. So we can print um, part of our, part of our, our swimmers uh, in just a matter of minutes. And then we can do the DNA connection process, you know, on the, on the order of minutes. And if we have to like anneal a new batch, it's just eight hours. So if we take, if we anneal a batch of swimmers and then we go test it, uh, the idea is that whatever we learn about how easy it was to control them or what important parameter they had that made them better at doing their job, we could just turn around the next day and anneal another batch to test the hypothesis and change like really fundamental properties of our swimmers. So from a manufacturing perspective, it just all comes back to rapid prototyping. And I think kind of like 3D printers and plastic, DNA is a really good rapid prototyping material. You know, we may find at the end of the day, there, there may be other materials we prefer to work in, but it's just so capable and so fast that it's wonderful for rapid prototyping nanostructures. It's great. You know, you, you'll have to make the, uh, the world's smallest violin nanostructure, you know, so then you can uh, <laughs> euphemistically use it. <laughs> To be the meanest advisor ever. Oh. <laughs> well, very good. So um, what's the best way for folks to find out more? I mean, it's, I'm excited. You're excited. Hopefully listeners are. But uh, I think it's super cool. So how can they, um, you know, get in contact with the lab out? or find out more? So um, my lab's website at Carnegie Mellon is, I guess the URL is www.andrew.cmu.edu forward slash user forward slash Bex, B-E-X. So that's actually my name. 
short form. Oh, okay. Um, but you can also get you can get to it by searching the Microsystems and Mechanobiology Lab, or just Rebecca Taylor at BNU. Very good. Well, thanks thanks for coming on the call. It's uh, it's been super interesting, and uh, you know I appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you so very very much for having me. Can I can I add one more thing? Oh sure. Yeah. Just add. I think uh, I as I wanted to say so. I'm in the mechanical engineering department and in Mechi uh, for the past three years, I've been teaching the junior mechanical design class. So I get to teach students how to make large scale robotic grippers and brackets and do stress analysis and sort of optimize, you know, mass minimal parts. And I feel like this is exactly the same thing we do in my lab. We just do it at the nanoscale. This spring, I'm teaching a class. It's really on uh, materials and how to manufacture with them. And it also gives a perspective uh, for students looking to uh, make a startup company, how to actually succeed in the manufacturing world after you've got this great idea, like how do you make something at scale? And I think the work with DNA Origami uh, really highlights for me that, you know, what I want to impress upon my students is that if you want to change the world, you know, and if you want to make something important, you want to help people, um, you need to go deep on the materials. You need to know the material properties of what you're working with, and you really need to know a lot about processing and how to actually form that material. And so everything my lab is doing essentially is just going deep on nucleic acid materials. And so I wouldn't even classify us as a DNA lab. You know, we're basically mm. a, a future materials lab. All right, well, very good. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.